Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. My name is Connor Collins. I am a registered massage therapist and sports injury therapist practicing 45 minutes outside of Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. And welcome to the Concast, a podcast where we discuss all things health, wellness, and injuries in an attempt to better understand the human body. This is episode number 58, where I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Gil Headley. Gil is an anatomist and founder of Integral Anatomy Seminars in the United States. He is an international educator and has influenced many manual therapists and researchers worldwide. Throughout this discussion, we tackled a lot of his very common analogies of the human body, things like the onion tree, his famous fuzz speech, as well as how he sees the function of the heart, as well as much, much more. So it was a really, really interesting conversation. I hope that you find it valuable and enjoy the episode. Okay, good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Once again, we have a great interview for you today, and I'd love to start uh, today's podcast with a little bit of a story about uh, the influence that this uh, guest has had on my career. Probably about 10 or 11 years ago, when I had first graduated Massage Therapy College, maybe 18 months into my career, I wanted to start investigating the human body in a little bit more depth that I'd learned when I was, uh, when I was in school myself. So I just started, uh, as many of us do, on YouTube. And I came across uh, this video about human anatomy. But what was different about this video is the start of the video was outside in nature. It had a trickling brook, a river, and a stream. And... It started me on this journey of learning anatomy in a bit of a different light, a blend of art and science. And I think this person is responsible for helping mold that journey. So without further ado, uh, Gil Hadley, welcome to the show. And uh, thanks very much for being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate your welcome. So Gil, as I said, you started me on this journey of looking at anatomy in a different light and when I first learned anatomy, it was in a, or from a very sort of scientific medical based perspective. And when I came onto your work, I felt like it was just different for whatever reason. And I wonder if you could first start by explaining your, your journey in how you got to where you are and doing the great work that you're doing. And then just touch on that point a little bit, just to open up our conversation. I think that'd be great. Yeah, sure. Well, um, like most of us, I started out on the planet with a body and, and, and it being somewhat <laughs> tweaked <laughs> and me tweaking it a little further. It got me um, kind of feeling like I had a need to know more about my own body in order to heal myself from the damage I was doing to it. First, I was in weightlifting and then Tai Chi and biking and massage therapy and rolfing and the sort of my trajectory that kind of overlapped my graduate school studies in theological ethics. 
and um, all that sort of brought me into not only a personal but a professional interest in exploring the body. But with that, I wouldn't say my academic background gives me any spiritual creds because studying theological ethics at the University of Chicago is about as <laughs> unspiritual a path <laughs> as you can possibly take. But as a person, um, I've always felt a you know, those deeper connections. And for me, it often expresses through nature. And when I observe nature and observe the body, the overlap is so apparent as to kind of uh, overrule that theological sense that we've been cast out of the garden. Uh, and more, it gives evidence that the garden is within us. And so I, witnessing the garden within me gives me a whole different way of appreciating the body as just a reiteration of the natural world of which I'm just a, a local expression. And that connection that I see between the two that you seem to enjoy when you saw my videos and the, the trickling brooks and the trees and all of that, which do evoke, you know, direct comparisons to the internals of our body. And I often feel like I'm just tracking the tracking the the paths of water when I'm doing my anatomical studies. Um, oh, look, here's how it made its, here's how water made its footprint here. Here's how water made its footprint there. And instead of trying to look at the body as a sort of a thing in itself, it's more like just witnessing the movements of life and nature in this particular place, you know, seeing what that does for me when I walk outdoors and think, oh, that's not other than me. This is all, all unparticipating in all of this. And my breath goes out and the trees inhale and vice versa. And we're really just one great respiratory system operating on this planet. You've just used so many analogies there, like trickling brook within us. And one of the big things that I remember from some of your work early when I was consuming it was the onion tree reference mm, um, mm -hmm. that you used a lot. I also wonder if you could expand on a little bit about how you see the body as an onion tree. And for those people that are maybe listening that don't have as much sort of medical or, or anatomical background, um, just expand on that concept a little bit about how you see the layers of the body. Yeah, sure. Well, onion tree is one of my favorite little models as an integral anatomist. And one of the things about integral anatomy is it, it rather than drawing on say machines for the modeling of the body, you know, brain as computer, elbow as hinge, general form as machine. I, I prefer to, again, look to nature for by analogies and trying to understand and really create more simple accesses to the complexity of human form. So the onion tree that you mentioned is, is a favorite of mine because it's so simple. It's so drastic a reduction of the reality of the human body that it actually proves helpful in just generating two things to look for as a dissector. One would be textural layers and the other one would be branching forms. You know, when I witness the body and I have many detractors who would say, there are no layers, Gil. And I'm like, yeah, I know, you know, and everything is one. And also everything is differentiated within that one into many, many uh, textures, right? And strata, right? The body is 
much like a geology zone, right? And you can witness the strata in it. And, and if, you, if you can't tell the difference with your hand or your eye or your scalpel between skin and liver, I don't know how to help you, but <laughs> it's like, in other words, to say that the body is one isn't to say there's no differences within the one. And the differences that I key on with that model are the textural layers. So let's say skin, superficial fascia, I add perifascia now, deep fascia, some more perifascia, um, you know, membranes and, and uh, viscera, you know, or and say bone. When, then we start to get into layers that are really trees, right? So the viscera is kind of a, a layer that, that actually a tree. So it, it starts in the middle and works its way out to the periphery and kind of finds its way back to the middle again. And so when I am dissecting the layers, I'm very conscious that I'm pruning the trees, right? So um, it just, it's just a way to kind of um, remember and ident identify different structures in the body, an extremely simple way. And I think that's the best way of describing a model is that it's a useful reduction, right? So um, I don't pretend that the body is an onion or a tree. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I know it's not either of those things, but if I, if I hold that little image in my mind of like a like tree branches interpenetrating through the layers of an onion. And when I'm dissecting, I'm like, oh, that's a branch of a tree. I wonder which tree. Or, <laughs> oh, that's, uh, I'm in a different layer of the onion. How cool is that? And then I want to follow it all the way around the whole globe of the onion and recognize that these textures are not limited by regions, right? And that they, they just romp on past our, our regions indiscriminately and wrap our whole form. And that's kind of cool too, to be able to break free of the regional anatomy as valuable as it is, so that you can also take in the actual continuities that are in front of your face that you might miss if you just keep focusing on the minutia of an area. Where do you think it started to become more about that in the world of anatomy? Because I remember when I was learning, and maybe it was just by virtue of where I learned my craft, it was very much the removal of these layers or strata and the focus on the musculature and the origin insertion of that with often the skin removed and the fascial layers removed and often even the viscera. And yeah. it seems as though in the last, uh, and maybe it was just the way that I learned it, but it seems as though in the last decade, there has been such a push as we know with the, the development of the Fascial Research Congress and all of these other bodies that are looking at this tissue, where do you think that shift occurred? And, or did you just make that shift sort of independently as you were going through your own career? Well, I, you know, I learned, uh, I can point to the day when I <laughs> shifted, you know, but really I, I, was, I took a, the Rolfing, uh, the training at the Rolf Institute and Tom Myers talked about layers. He was the anatomy teacher in my Roth Institute training before anatomy trains or all of his books and kinesis program and all of that. He was a teacher at the Roth Institute and, uh, and I was uh, taking the program there. And Tom talked about layers and I thought, huh, that's cool. Textural layers, that's kind of interesting. You know, and we were we were taught to palpate them. You know, to have we partnered up and did psychometric exercises where it'd be like, okay, see if you can find out where your partner's hiding in their body, and and then the partner's job was to sort of consciously be present, say, in their bones or in their muscle. It's all a bit fanciful, but the exercise itself 
uh, it was actually pretty easy to find them. <laughs> you know, you'd be like, uh, you, you would think that's crazy, but it wasn't really hard to like be like, oh, you're hanging out in your in your viscera right now, aren't you? Like, yeah, you found me. You know, it was, it was very interesting. So, you know, when I came away from that and I wanted to pursue understanding of anatomy better as a rolfer, and I thought to do some dissection and I didn't immediately go to that. I, I first just picked up, uh, you know, Grant's uh, dissector, uh, just a medical textbook at a, at a bookstore and, and started trying to do it that, that way. And there was no interest or respect for layers in that process. It was just, you know, cut here, chuck that slice here and, and you'll find this thing. Right. And I was like, okay, well, that's cool. It was interesting to do it that way. It was a bit nightmarish because you end up with a body that's just you never actually see any of the continuities from one region to another. You just see, okay, we're going for the heart now and you saw open the chest and then it's like, well, where's that hamstring? And you whack off everything above it. And, and you end up with the, the table looking like um, something that just ran through a, a plane propeller, you know? Uh, and then I, I thought, okay, I'm gonna do this class again next year, but I can't do it that way. I was like having nightmares, literally I couldn't sleep. I was like PTSD from the experience of disrespecting the layers so dramatically and but not even being conscious that that was what the problem was, you know, only that there's a psychological impact to ignoring the layers, to right. ignoring the continuity and to just creating this higgledy-piggledy train wreck on the table. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, I had an aha moment. I woke up one morning and I was like, whoa, what if, you know, for me, this is how it came about. What if I were to dissect the body kind of the way we've been trying to feel the body in our rolfing training or the way I feel it in my practice where I don't necessarily go straight for something. I, I kind of work my way down to it as I pass through these different textures. What if I were able to visually witness that by dissecting according to those textures rather than according to this book? And I thought, okay, I'll run an experiment. And I had I got a few fellow rolfers together. And I said, here's what I'd like to do. And they're all like, cool. And so we, you know, we just tried with our very incompetent dissection skills to just remove the skin or to create a skin, you know, to, to just create it and take it away in the same stroke. And then there was this giant yellow body in front of us that none of us had ever seen before. I hadn't seen that in a book, this yellow body. Like, where was that hiding? Why isn't that in the book? Oh my gosh. And it was very educational to, to, to witness that. And then, then to just keep going and then to refine that process and, and per set of perceptions uh, to a much greater degree over the next 27 years of repeating the process. Right. Um, and, uh, and it turns out that it's been instructive for many people. And it's a way of sort of highlighting the things that are Basically, I like to say that what I've been trying to develop is an anatomy that's coherent with the holistic body philosophies of the many professions that I'm catering to, to not borrow our anatomy from the medical establishment, which certainly deserves its due and I stand upon its shoulders, but it misses, it misses the forest for the trees in the biggest way. And the, the reductionism of the regional model leaves you wanting for a connection to the continuities that are the ones that are generating results in most people's practices. <laughs> in other words, 
if you think it's everything is happening because everything is a thing and it's isolated unto itself in this spot. And if you have a pain in your shoulder, then you must have a problem in your shoulder. Well, maybe you have a problem in your liver. Maybe you got a problem in your knee. And maybe your shoulder is making up for it in the way that you support yourself as you move through space. Well, you know, then you have to look beyond a, a spot or a region or a thing. You have to look to fabrics and continuities and relationships and uh, interconnectedness. And, and uh, for many people, it's been the fascia that speaks to that. I, I've been sort of lately, well, not lately, but forever pegged as a fascia guy because I use the word fascia in my DVD series, I guess. But I see myself as just an integral anatomy guy. To me, I'm interested in the relationship of all those textures and all those tissues uh, in the whole and how they differentiate and how they impact one another through their complex uh, relationships, which aren't exclusively fascial. You know, um, I mean, connective tissue is through the whole, you know, but that whole then differentiates into many forms. And I'm interested in all those forms. So much there. How, how do you think as you talked about the development of, of your perception through your work, how do you think that that's translated over to the things that we do or the things that it seems as though the perception of the human body has started to change a little bit, as you've said, how more people like yourself are talking about the body as a whole, an integral subset of systems or layers. And it also appears like that has started to get out into the general public where people are looking at Yoga is so popular, not to say that it wasn't before, but things like yoga, Pilates, things like stress yeah. reduction, trying mm -hmm. to pull in from all, all of these systems to manage health and wellness. How do you think that has evolved over the last 20 or 30 years? It's, it's been amazing, actually, to watch it and, and to be a tiny part of it in my own, in my own explorations to con contribute to, to that um, and what little way I have. But but it's just, it's, it's a wave, it's a wave of energy that I think comes as a, as a reaction, like a pendulum swing to the, to the incredible reduction of the person and the problematization of every bit of you into some form of trouble that's gonna be solved by some commodified solution. And that in response to that, there's, I think a desire to feel, you know, to, to feel connected to oneself when our culture would would pull us away in in so many directions from that. And I think that's something like, uh, well, yoga is just humongous, you know, a uh, tsunami of, of energy and interest. And I mean, it started as just a little whisper in the, you know, whatever the Chicago uh, World's Fair or whatever it was when Vivekananda came over and and spoke, and then Yogananda came over, and all these people, uh, DT Suzuki, you know, these people who came over and and sort of brought east to west, and and that has just been a seed percolating, and now the tree is in full bloom, I think. And also, of course, we, you know, whether it be Pilates or, you know, Joe Pilates had a little studio, and you went in there, and he pointed you to a bunch of posters, and you you grunted and screamed until you were about to pass out and he'd be like, oh, good, you know, and that was Pilates, you know, now it wasn't like, you know, beautiful studios with crafted, uh, he, he had like stuff he made in his wood shop or whatever. And, and now they've, you know, balanced body has turned it into this gorgeous oak, you know, <laughs> furniture that uh, beautiful people in expensive studios 
um, go to. And and so they, they, what I'm saying, not that's not to dismiss it in the slightest. I, I think Vaudel is awesome, but it's just to say that that um, so they had somewhere along the line to figure out how to make a living at it because Joe Pilates didn't really figure out how to make a living at it. And if you want something to keep going, you know, people got to make a living at it, whether it be yoga or Pilates. So it's become an industry, not merely a whole a pursuit of holism, but it's a, it's a pursuit of making a living. Same thing with body work, right? So we're, we're all trying to make a living and yet doing it in a way that speaks more fully to the integrity and holism we all seek, you know? So it's like, I think that's attractive to a lot of people. I can't tell you how many people come into my workshops and be like, so tell me a little about yourself. And it's like, well, I spent 30 years as a computer software engineer and couldn't take it anymore and started doing yoga and was like, yeah, that's where it's at. You know, and they were able to maybe take their retirement and, and become a yoga teacher or a Pilates teacher or something like that. I feel like there's a, a confluence of things, you know, where we've taken something, you know, maybe from another culture and brought it into our culture in a way that actually feeds back to those other cultures, right? And then you end up having people going to India to teach yoga. You know, it's like, really? Well, well, the world is a small place after a while. But I think that now what I've noticed in my career is that the Pilates and the yoga people, in addition to the massage people and the rolfers, I started off just teaching rolfers. Then a massage star therapist started piling in, your occasional phys physical or occupational therapist. And then, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, uh, out of 27, maybe 10 years ago, the Pilates and the yoga folks started being like, well, we got to learn anatomy too, you know, because as the end, as those grow as industries and thousands of teachers are being produced uh, annually or daily, I don't know, then all those people in order to get an edge in their own community, just the same way that I wanted to get an edge as a rolfer. I wanted to learn more anatomy. I thought I'd be a better rolfer if I knew more anatomy. Well, it turns out that the Pilates and the yoga people have come to the same conclusion and all of their faculty types have come and taken my classes and others. And then that trickles down, you know, into their communities or people like Sue Hitzman in the fitness industry, you know, or, or uh, Jill Miller, you know, these are people who, who come from the fitness industry and, or, or yoga in Jill's case. And then they're like, we need to know more anatomy too. And then they jump in and take it and tell all the teachers to come and take my class. And before you know it, there's, there's sort of a, a little more depth and gravitas when people are talking about anatomy uh, in the teacher trainings and such like that, because you know your average Pilates or yoga student doesn't come to a dissection class or looking at my videos, but the teachers are, and not just my stuff, uh, of course, but the whole like you mentioned, the fascia congress has been a huge uh, resource for that that interest on the part of the, all these several industries in developing themselves and touching smarter and taking care of their clients better and, and also uh, having better experiences of their own body, you know, having more to explore. I don't know if it's true, uh, but it's like, you see there's like five, five colors in the Old Testament that get mentioned. Like they didn't, really couldn't quite see blue yet. You know, in other words, in other words there weren't all seven, there weren't seven colors of the rainbow, there were like five, you know, and then a couple thousand years later, you know, we can see more color. It's kind of like that with the body. You know, they could, you can only see so much on your first pass or your second pass or even on your 10th pass. It took me like 10 times of dissection before I started seeing nerves, right. you know, 
they just weren't obvious to me. I was too busy just seeing yellow. You know, I was like, wow, there's a lot of yellow here. Oh my Lord, we're yellow inside. And then after that, it's like, oh, I started to see shades of yellow. I started to see threads going through the yellow. I started to see different. I started to see more, the more I looked and the more I looked and what astonishes me is that after all this time, I keep seeing more. It's like looking, it's like if you had a, the Hubble telescope and you just point it at a, you know, a dark patch of sky and, and let it sit there for a month. And before you know it, you're seeing, you know, just billions of galaxies and, and that, that were invisible to you. It's, it's not unlike that with the human body. And I think that that's why you could be like, how could there be anything new in anatomy to say or see, see or observe? Well, even without the aid of uh, microscopes or anything, it just like, standing in front of a table for a few decades, you start to see more. And I realize that, wow, I, I realize when people come in, they're not seeing what I'm seeing. It takes, it takes a while. I mean, they see more than I did when I walked in the dark for having the help you know, of someone who's, who's walked the path a little bit. I know that the people who walk in the room see 20 times more than I saw my first dissection. And I hope you know, to share that in my videos as well. But now I feel like it's just like, like a fractal form that if you've ever watched like videos of the Mandelbrot set or the uh, something like that, the Julia set, they're so beautiful. Just type it in YouTube or something. Look, Mandelbrot set video and like a cartoon where you're just falling into a math equation that's infinitely um, self-similar and repeating and yet ever unfolding and expanding. And I feel like that's what it's like to stand at the cadaver table. I'm like falling into the Mandelbrot set and, and the, the infinitude of it just keeps reeling itself to me. One of, one of the things that you'd mentioned, we've mentioned a couple of times is this, this sort of fascial relationship and the relationship and layers of the human body. And one of the other things that you're sort of very well known for is your fuzz speech. Mm -hmm. And that was something that again, took off and, and was all over the internet and I just wonder if you could touch on how you see the importance of fascia in our body and maybe discuss a little bit about fuzz and where your current thoughts are on fuzz, because I know you've refined it a couple of times since your original speech. Thank you for knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so it's it must be rough for like the Rolling Stones to have to play whatever, you know, uh, under my thumb for the, you know, seven millionth time. And I've done uh, I've done my research, Gil, a little bit. Yeah, so. <laughs> I, I appreciate that very much. Because uh, often, whenever often when someone says, I, "I'd love to include your fuzz, fuzz speech in my course or whatever," do you mind if I link to it? I'm like, "Yeah, but first, watch this four-hour <laughs> video I posted for free <laughs> to explain and correct it from my you know further experience." So, now the thing about fascia, at least from me, say coming to those early dissections as a as a as a new rolfer with a curious mind and a, a word in my head and a love for the word fascia, but not much knowledge really about it, right? Except a few facts on a, on a note sheet that I took a test on, you know, but not an intimate relationship, like as a sculptor to a material, which is what I have now. And I do see myself as a sculptor and I've, I've sort of created a, a deep and intimate relationship with several textures, you know, that I know how to work with, not just clay or just marble or just wood, but clay and marble and wood and a few other textures. Um, and so fascia 
you know, is gets bandied about as a, as a word and people tend to think even that that means one thing or something. And so the, maybe the most important thing I could share in a, in a nutshell that I've learned about fascia is that there's more than one kind of fascia. You know, there's a lot of different textures um, in the body and that to my mind do meet the strict definition of fascia that was developed just a few years ago at the Fascia Congress. When I hear people talk about fascia, I want to help them know that that's a broad, word and that it might be that they might have a more refined and functional understanding a more useful understanding if they knew that you know some you know some fascia is like fat bearing some fascia is uh, a slippery interface that permits differential movement and some fascia is more um, grid-like and stabilizing and uh, exoskeletal you know and that each one of those uh, just now mentioned have a different sort of movement properties and contribute differently to our movement. And so, you know, superficial fascia, I use Gray's language, you know, um, Henry Gray's language. So superficial fascia would be the subcutaneous adipose basically. And that would include its matrix as well as its lipo lipids, right? So it doesn't sort of parse them out, but just counts the whole thing as opposed to maybe the way that, uh, say Carlos Deckel would um, reference more particularly certain membranes that can be differentiated sometimes within that adipose layer. You know, so she'll identify that as superficial fascia instead of the whole. Well, that's fine, just so she can speak Italian, I can speak English and it's all good. Um, but then something like the fuzz, you know, that I encountered and identified with surprise was basically, again, because our, the books just like saying we missed a few colors a couple thousand years ago. Well, we missed a few layers a few hundred years ago. I, I shouldn't say that really. I think actually the earlier anatomists were more, were paying better attention to the fascia and that it was more that it dropped out of the curriculum and is now just making its way back into the curriculum. So it's not like it's a new discovery. It's a rediscovery, uh, I would say. In fact, something like what I call the fuzz and didn't see any pictures of in the books and wasn't really identified in my Rolfing training either. It wasn't in the list of layers that I was looking to, for to feel. So when I encountered it, I, I, I at first was in reaction thinking maybe this doesn't belong here, how weird. I kind of pictured you know, individuated muscles that slipped along on each other, maybe by a fluid or something. You know, I didn't really comprehend that the tissues of the body are irreducibly continuous and connected and unfolded from that single embryo. And so there is no gap or space, you know, particularly. And that even where there's a potential space, it may be uh, adhesion through fluid or, or through what I call now perifascia or fuzz, but the, it's not a pathological adhesion to witness the connection of rectus femoris and vastus uh, intermediates, right? So we have named muscle structures that conjure in our minds individual things. But when you're doing the dissection, it's like, uh, this stuff's connected. <laughs> and then the question is, is that connection aberrant or does it belong there? And it took me a long time to figure out that it belonged there. And then to try and comprehend, well, what is its original texture as opposed to the texture I'm witnessing in this desiccated and bombed form in front of me, right? So you're working with a bunch of illusions 
whether you're alive or you're dead. And when you have a, a dead form in front of you that's been chemically treated and altered, it doesn't change what's there in terms of like the basic content, except for some added fluid, but it does change its texture and maybe its functionality so that a fixed form speaks to the fact that it doesn't move much, right? It's fixed, right? And so fixed by embalming is basically a kind of cooking, right? And of course, a cooked piece of turkey doesn't move the same way as a uncooked piece of turkey. But the, 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 the human form in a dissection lab, you know, the muscle tissue when it's been set up by embalming fluid has a, is more dry. And the perifascia or the fuzz that, that is the differential movement interface, the anatomy of movement between the named muscle structures, you know, between this chunk of this fasciculi of protein and this fasciculi of protein, each wrapped in a sort of sleeve of fibrous connective tissue and then continuous with one another through a more slippery membranous layer. And that slippery membranous layer, when it's embalmed and you pull it apart, looks like cotton candy. If it's not pulled apart, it's actually a dried membrane. And then if it's not embalmed, it's actually a slippery wet membrane. And so by exploring different states of preservation in the forms, I could starting to witness already that what I called filmy fascia that was in between the muscle layers. Because when I realized I didn't pull it apart and it was wetter, it was like a film. Uh, like a slippery, slippery membranous film. So I called it filmy fascia for about 10 years. I made that fuzz speech and barely spoke of it again uh, because I suddenly, I spent the next 10 years talking about filmy fascia. And then I was like getting to, I was kind of getting ready for the British Fascia Symposium in 2016. And I was like, filmy fascia, I need a new word. I need a new word because it's better than fuzz, <laughs> which just makes people giggle. But, but filmy fascia, you know, speaks to my, constituency of texture loving body workers, but it doesn't necessarily speak to the anatomists. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, I need a word that speaks to what I'm looking at here for anatomists. And so I was like, well, it's kind of fascia that's around the fascia. It's like fascia fascia. It's, it's peri fascia. It's right around or pertaining to or above or on top of or surrounding. So peri surrounding. Uh, it's fascia that surrounds fascia, so I called it perifascia. And first I called it perifascial membranes, actually. And then I was like, no, it's a fascia in itself because I can actually cut it into a fascia. I can, meaning I can cut it into a sheet with a knife. And if I can cut something into a sheet with a knife, it pretty much qualifies as a, as a fascia, as a prop, fascia proper. And I demonstrated that you know, on many video videos and, and put them together so that people could see that I wasn't just kidding when I'm calling this, this snot, <laughs> that this slimy stuff in the body that is usually just, is transparent and not even acknowledged. But look, I can actually make a sheet out of it on camera with my knife and it's easy to do. And anyone can do it once you know it's there. Anyone can see blue once you have a word for it. And anyone can cut a sheet of perifascia once you have language for it. You know, it sort of gets thingified or it becomes real or accessible or repeatable as an experiment, you know, once you make up some words. So that word is, that's doing well. <laughs> it's not, it might not be as widely known as fuzz, but, um, but perifascia, I love the word and I, I am happy to see people starting to use it.
because it does identify. It's like I joke, you know, I misnamed my DVDs. You know, they should have been called, you know, uh, skin and superficial fascia and perifascia. <laughs> and the next one should have been called whatever, deep fascia and perifascia and muscle. And it would have been more accurate because the truth is that that deep fascia is actually embedded in this membrane. It's not just above it and below it, but it's through it. It's actually like if you took a grid of spaghetti and, and cooked it and put it in jello in the fridge, then you'd be looking at deep fascia embedded in perifascia. You had mentioned that uh, depending upon what form you're seeing this in, it can kind of change its texture. How do you think the things that we do to our own body change its function throughout? Or have you theorized how something like hydration or movement or nutrition might augment this? Yeah, well, there's two things there and I'll, I'll separate them. Uh, when I said what I said, I was really referencing like degrees, degrees of embalming. So um, for instance, I, I worked with embalmed tissue for uh, a long time before I started working with the unfixed forms. And still within embalmed tissue, there can be tissue that was embalmed a year ago, and there can be tissue that was embalmed three days ago. And so I, I, I had many opportunities actually, because, you know, sometimes my friends at the schools will be like, uh, Gil, we're going to run your class still, uh, but we're going to have to give you a kind of a newbie here. <laughs> you know, in other words, it hasn't had time to, to really set up. So it's been embalmed. So there's been a whatever that might be alive there that would eat the body is now killed in Listerine or whatever, right? But it's not fixed yet. It's embalmed, but not fixed, meaning the tissue hasn't cooked or set up or had time to outgas. And so that's where I started witnessing these differences, you know, between types of embalming. But in what your second part of your question, how, how is it relating to our own behavior and movement? And can we witness that? Well, yeah, absolutely. Because so say we have this, what I would call a reservoir in our body, like a, a fluid reservoir in the form of this perifascial wrapping that's, that's in which we're sort of living in this sort of gelatinous matrix of perifascia, which I can cut into sheets, but that doesn't make a sheet out of it. It's a more integral substance, you know, even down to the cellular level, we can get Neil Teza calling it interstitium, you know, where it's like something that's between cells, not merely between giant fasciculi of muscles or something like that. So that texture in our body, that fluid texture can get dehydrated, right? In other words, and not merely by not drinking enough water, but by not moving through it, right? So in other words, there are parts of a, you could drink a lot of water and never hydrate certain right. tissues. A, maybe because you're sitting on them all the time <laughs> and they can't and they don't really get good circulation through them or whatever. And we can shake that out and get up and move around. But you don't have to be turned into cotton candy, dry cotton candy to be dehydrated. It's we're talking about degrees, right? So you don't say, you know, if your pH of your blood is moving towards acid, that your blood is acid. If your blood is acid, you're dead, right? But it can be less basic or less, I'm sorry, less alkaline. And then it's moving in an acid direction, you're going to get cancer, right? In other words, similarly, I'll, I'll say, you don't have to be, you know, a crackled twig <laughs> to be dehydrated. You know, you can have changes in your physiology with degrees 
of lack of hydration, which are going to change, say, the rate at which certain metabolic processes take place. You know, the, the pH or the, the rate of electrolytic um, transfers and this sort of thing. In other words, so I would say that when we're dehydrated or we are using our, our stack or immobile a lot, and this can be just a spot in your body. You can move your ass across the parking lot all day long back and forth and never move your shoulder, right? Or something, you know, so we hold it given our social patterning and our religious patterning and our personal dispositions. We hold our bodies in certain ways and create like I'll say dry spots. Don't take it too literally, but dry spots where the tissues are moving out of that optimal uh, slipperiness into say a more gummy state, a, a more viscous state, less ideally fluid and slippery. And then you can go beyond that even. And you can start to have say the deposition of certain kinds of crystals from the Maillard effect. You basically slow cooking yourself, right? And, and so that you can go from being optimally slippery throughout your body to be optimally slippery through some of your body and gummy in some of your body. And you can be gummy in some of your body and actually brittle in some of your body. And all of these things, I think, you know, are effects of our behavior, our disposition, our movement patterns that can be addressed through touch, through movement, through the release most primarily of ideas, because it's our ideas that hold us in place, I think, more firmly than anything. So if I think I'm a good Catholic, and I did <laughs> when I was a young man, well, that created a kind of a stillness in my body you know, that was a reflection of my, uh, my ideas about myself. Or when I thought I was a good Tai Chi guy, I held my body quite differently than I, actually the combination of a good Catholic and a good Tai Chi guy is a really a disaster. <laughs> that, was, that was me in graduate school, you know, where I was like a Catholic Tai Chi guy. And basically I moved around with my knees slightly bent and only my diaphragm gently pulsing beneath my still rib cage <laughs> and you know it's amazing i didn't suffocate uh but you know eventually i did manage to throw that off and it changed my body considerably so i think what you're getting at is is offering your body progressive elements of stress to create those changes in the body and give it an opportunity to be under stress to some degree to create that proposed change or the maintenance of, of health and wellness, whatever that may be. Yeah, and that stress might be our rolfing series. Right. In other words, something that stirs the pot a little bit, that maybe decompensates you a little bit enough to set you out of balance because our, our balance points can often be, you know, like, yeah, I'm on track, but I'm on track to the grave, you know? So it, it, in other words, sometimes it helps to be a little discombobulated. Well, I mean, like I, we used to say in, in, when I practiced Tai Chi, that, that a good Tai Chi person wasn't a person who never got out of balance. It was a person who could come back to balance after they were out of balance. And so I find that if you disrupt your patterns on a regular basis, you're going to discover in your body places that you haven't moved. Maybe just touch on that too as well, because uh, one of the things that we often get really obsessed with is the idea of symmetry 
in, in mm -hmm. whether it be in movement or when we're, when we're learning uh, or teaching anatomy, we talk about, you know, muscles of the body. And one of the things that I wanted to get your thoughts on is just the asymmetry of the body and what you've seen over the years mm. and, and the fact that there's asymmetry within us and, and all of yeah, this stuff. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I, it's, I, I love the exploration of, of the ideas of symmetry versus balance. Right. So that's why I enjoyed so much stacking rocks back when I lived on that beautiful stream. And I could, I could find the balance of this radically asymmetrical, these stones, maybe balanced even on point, one upon another to my height even. And look at that and be like, oh, that's a person. How cool. <laughs> you know, because there's a line there. In other words, there's a, there's a, there's a line of gravity going through this set of rocks because if it, if it weren't, it, it couldn't be standing there like that. And, and yet it's bulging out on one side and sticking out on the other side, and it's not symmetrical at all. And so that was a huge aha for me when I did all those, that rock play way back when. And it educated me to stop demanding symmetry of the body. And my dissection explorations just brought the point home like a baseball bat to the head. We are not symmetrical. <laughs> you know, we may be symmetrical just in the most um, mathematical sense. You got an arm on one side and an arm on the other side, an eyeball on one side of your nose and an eyeball on the other side of the nose. You know, when you smile, both sides of your face goes up, <laughs> right? So there's a, there's a very rudimentary kind of bilateral symmetry um, that breaks down the second you get into the gut <laughs> and you have a, a big old liver on one side and a wee little spleen on the other side and your stomach is going from front to back and there's only one of them and it's just a dilation of a tube that's squiggling from your mouth to your anus and, and all that. But even in the things that are bilaterally symmetrical and this I've found over the last year and I've documented in an extreme way to bring the point home. Like there is not a single pair of muscles on your body that's symmetrical. Uh, the symmetry that we project on the body is a mental construct from Euclidean geometry. And we're not Euclidean geometrical forms, we're fractal forms. And there's self-similarity, but not, not absolute symmetry. And even if you look just carefully in, in nature, you see that it doesn't do symmetry that much. It does self-similarity, which is very different than, than some kind of uh, mathematical Euclidean geometric symmetry. And it's cool to see it because it's like, oh, yeah, of course, like, duh. After a while, you're like, of course, it can't be the same. You know, we don't do the same things with our left hand or our right hand. And so they're forming in the most intimate detail differently. There's a few stray fibers going off here that aren't on this side, or there's what have you, or, oh, how cool. Look, these two named muscles that get their own flashcard in the book are actually convergent in this body on this side in a way that's maybe differently expressed on the other. And it goes on and on and on. And the vertebrae, which you could draw so perfectly in an anatomy book, and the artists always do because they haven't done any dissection, right? And so they're making it up in their mind and they, and they project their mental idealizations of symmetry upon the form. And then you look at an actual spine in a body 
and you're like, wow, that's a lumpy, weird thing with you know transverse processes pointing higgledy-piggledy in different directions and, and bulbous discs sticking out that were asymptomatic. It just goes on and on. Oh, and look, here's a, just a bizarre half-inch long bone spur sticking out of the humerus that's just going to nowhere <laughs> and there's no reason for it on God's green earth. Why this chunk of bone is sticking out like this. There's nothing hanging onto it. It's just poking through the muscle. You know, I see this stuff every day. With so much time spent dissecting forms throughout your career, and we've touched on one aspect, which is movement. What are your thoughts on, I don't know if you're familiar with Gabor Mate's work on stress and and the influence of cognitive stressors on things. But I, I wonder if through all your work of looking at disease processes that have gone on, do you have any mm-hmm. opinions about cognitive stress and the ability to not manage our stress well and how that may manifest over the course of our lifetime? Yeah, de- manifest in death <laughs> and d- disease. Uh, first misery, then disease, then death. <laughs> so I don't know anything about that gentleman's work, but um, I think we might be peas in a pod <laughs> in, our, in our reflections at different levels. And cert- certainly we are our own worst enemies uh, in terms of untoward processes evolving in, in our bodies. And and I love Antoine Bechamp, uh, who was Pasteur's uh, nemesis and brilliant, <laughs> um, lousy marketer of his day. So Pasteur, I think, was a shitty scientist and a good marketer <laughs> eventually. And Bechamp was a brilliant scientist and a lousy marketer. And so uh, he never took hold. But basically, he said, you know, the milieu is all, you know, the internal milieu is all. And the internal milieu, as far as I can tell, is a function of our, of our emotional and, and cognitive um, life. You know, our thoughts and our emotions are unfolding our DNA moment by moment, literally. In other words, you think something and you feel fear and your body prepares in, in that state of anxiety or you feel compassion or love and your body prepares and the hormones and the proteins that they represent that are now pouring forth from your cells are at the behest of your thoughts and feelings and can't not be. And so I think we underestimate in our own dissociation from our bodies and in our propensity to identify with our thoughts rather than with our our bodies or with the integration of of all of it, as if our bodies are not an expression of our thoughts at at a level, or maybe of the thought of all, maybe of a greater consciousness than we have cared to identify with. You know, that that we're we're just stumbling along thinking that we're the stupid things we're thinking in a given moment, um, rather than uh, something much larger and greater. And if we are able to sort of pull ourselves out of that morass of cognition that we think is so important and actually settle into a breath or a heartbeat and its own nuances for a minute, just a minute, you know, just like permit that endless stress of cognition to transition into some uh, 
what do they call it? Interoception, <laughs> you know, like feeling the sensations that are happening inside of your body. That's, I don't know if that's what interoception means, but that's what I'm going to pretend it yeah, means you're right. for the sake of the conversation, you know, because I, I like to do that. You know, I like to sometimes, because I am, gosh, if anyone has ever had a diarrhea of the brain, uh, it would be me, <laughs> you know, uh, and I was, it just keeps, keeps on going. <laughs> and so I have to like stop myself daily and just for a few minutes and be like, let me feel my heart, you know, let me feel my breath, let me feel what's good, all the good feelings that are in me that feel so much better than the shitty thoughts I have all day long. <laughs> you, know? you, uh, you talked about the heartbeat. One of the other uh, things that I've, I've heard you talk about in a really fascinating way is the heart itself. And mm. uh, I'd love for you to just maybe reiterate that to the audience, just talking about how we might think about the heart and how you see the heart as a as sort of that central pump and sort of twisting mechanism and oh, not not me i'll never call it a central pump <laughs> but i will call it central okay in other words i'll speak of the heart center but that pump that pump metaphor i kind of tossed to the wind with rudolf steiner back in the 1920s who said the heart is not a pump and i was like what it gotta be a pump everyone says it's a pump and I'm like, maybe not, not a pump. Maybe it's maybe, as you mentioned also, and uh, is that it's a, the place maybe where the blood spins itself, right? You know, and where, where the life movement is refreshed in our body in the heart center. I say the heart center to distinguish it from the notion of kind of an amputated potato inside your chest um, that called the heart in our regional anatomy, as if the, the prolongations of that heart center to the periphery and back are not continuous as a texture and they are. So I see this great, fantastic and astonishing loop-de-loop in our body that is perfusing to the very most distant cells from the center and back than as the heart and the heart center is that moving place in our chest where the slowed down lassitudinous blood coming from the periphery on its vacuum return. It's being sucked back to the center rather than pushed, right? So we have a, a, a movement form generated in the vortex of the blood that carries itself without resistance, such that the, the vessels themselves are an expression of the blood's movement rather than the a re resisting course that it has to traverse somehow through by force, you know, uh, by the heart pushing. When, that can happen. That, in other words, when when we generate resistance through hypertension in our in our arterial tree, we actually force the heart to reduce itself to the status of a pump. In which case, it will have megalocardia. The heart will actually increase in its muscular size because we're demanding that that which is not a pump become a pump to keep us alive a little bit longer on the planet. But when we relax into life's movement within us, when we allow ourselves to be moved by the heart, right, rather than the other way around, right, where we insist that the, it go this way and that way, right, but rather allow, allow this, this movement that we can ride, you know, we can ride it, like drop the oars and ride the movement of life that's pulsing within us and rather than resisting it. And then you will have slippery, <laughs> you will have slipperiness throughout the form, you know, because the, the heart does not care 
about your dogmas. The heart will not subject itself to your rules in the same way that your mind will place this straitjacket and canals and dams upon the movement of life within you to the point where you're, you know, feel like most of us do in our head-centered culture. Like shit, (laughs) because it hurts, it hurts. It literally hurts to live by your head. Gil, just before uh, just before we wrap up, talk about uh, what you've been doing over the last year with uh, recording um, your dissection series mm-hmm. and what's upcoming this year, um, and where and where people can find out about that. Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, when I did my integral anatomy series uh, back in two thousand and five through eight, I think I did all that shooting mostly in two thousand and five. I spent 28 straight days in the lab. I spent 17 hours a day and I dissected a whole body on camera the best as I could after 10 years of practice. Now it's 27 years of practice later and I took an entire year and dissected two forms. <laughs> and I, I, I literally have spent an entire year in the lab, like full time, sometimes seven days a week. And, I, and that's what I've been doing this year. I've been recording me dissecting two forms Uh, I call them Anna and Z. So I like to talk of the project as anatomy from A to Z. And uh, what I do is I I dissect from one form to the other and show and compare and contrast them. And I literally, every muscle of the body has its own movie, you know, several. Like I can go for like two hours on the peck, you know, and it's fun and it's very compelling. I've been watching the footage and it's just like, it's kind of like hanging out with Bob Ross uh, and you got a canvas and, and it's like, oh, what a pretty little nerve we have here. And, oh, I cut it off, darn. And like, I can fix it, no worries. And you know, it kind of goes like that. And so I have hundreds of hours of footage and what I'm gonna do is op- upload it all onto my site so that the story of the human body can be told in much greater detail than I have been able to prior to creating this compendium of recordings and allow people to ultimately, once it's all uploaded, you can literally just pick something and go to the video. You know, So there's gonna be hundreds of, hundreds of, of clips. Uh, and it's all gonna, and I decided I can't just charge like 2,500 or $5,000 so people can have access to this thing because who can afford it and but like, what's it worth? And so I decided instead to just do it for 15 bucks. <laughs> In other words, and basically you can all watch me ed- edit it and it'll come out and I'm gonna every month um, do like live premieres while I'll do Q&A. And it's all for members on my website. It's going to be like 15 bucks a month. And you can come and go as you please. And all the credits are going to be included in that. So all my courses are going to be low. I'm just putting everything I've ever done into one place for 15 bucks. And when's that going to begin? Uh, May 1st. Amazing. So for people that want to find your website or find you on social media, uh, just give yourself a shout out of what your website is and what your social medias are in case they don't already know. Sure. Well, www. and it's G-I-L, Gil Headley, H-E-D-L-E-Y.com. So gilheadley.com is where all the stuff is. Right now you can join my site for free uh, and you'll always be able to join my site for free and get about 16 hours of everything I've done before this project. Uh, but this will include also all the courses I recorded and, uh, and all of this encyclopedic level of, of uh, dissection videos plus all of the all the uh, premieres and stuff that I'll do on a monthly basis and anything else I think up for the rest of my life is going to go into this uh, 
So gilheadley.com, and uh, it's a great place to go. You just sign up there, and if you want to click the little the little box for my for my e email list, and then you'll be notified of everything as it happens. And I really appreciate you letting me share that because uh, guys got to make a living. I want to thank you so much, Gil, for for coming on. Just before you came on today, I saw that you posted something on Facebook. I think it's appropriate to uh, leave the podcast here with some of Gil's thoughts. There are a lot of moving parts in my life at the moment, multiple major things to keep me on track of requiring adult level attention. Maybe you know the feeling too. Sometimes a list is the only way to handle it. And on that list, it pays to include sit still for a few moments and forget about the list and feel into the simple, irreducible sensations of life moving within you. Thanks, everybody, for uh, joining me on this episode. If you have any questions for Gil or myself, feel free to leave them in the comments below. Enjoy your weekend, and we will see you in the next one.